Hello and welcome to another episode of A24 on the Rocks. Today we'll be reviewing a film where Barry Keoghan is a demented sociopath, hell-bent on vengeance for perceived slights against him. You guessed it, today we're reviewing Salt Burn... Um, wait, let me check my notes here. Sorry. No, we're actually reviewing Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, but first, <laughs> as we start out every episode, we tell you what we're drinking, and I'm drinking an Old Forester, a bourbon that was named after a Civil War surgeon with beautiful hands. Dr. William Forrester. Kevin, what are you drinking? <laughs> I wish it was drinking Old Forrester. I had <laughs> no idea that was named after that. I have a bottle over there. It's one of my favorites. But I'm actually drinking my favorite beer on the planet. Um, I'm drinking what's called Tropical Slush, uh, and it's made by Eagle Park. And I'll just let you listen, uh, listeners kind of imagine what that tastes like, but it's fucking delicious. So, yeah. Uh, I'm Cole William Whitlaw Gibson. Tonight I am drinking uh, some Northern Irish whiskey called Hatch. That is quite delicious. And sadly, we usually have uh, my wife Kelly on this, but she is not feeling good, hasn't been feeling good for the last couple weeks, so uh, she will not be on this one. So, sorry if uh, we're missing your voice. Let's get into this film, shall we? The Killing of a Sacred Deer is a 2017 psychological thriller directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who recently directed the Oscar-nominated film Poor Things that we reviewed a few weeks ago, and it stars Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, and Barry Keoghan. It's about a cardiac surgeon named Stephen Murphy who has meetups with a strange teenager from his past named Martin before Stephen's kids begin to mysteriously fall ill. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival on May 22, 2017, and had its U.S. nationwide release on October 20, 2017. The film starts us with a dark screen and grand orchestral music, and then we see a beating heart that our main character, Steven, is doing surgery on. Cole, why start out the film this way? Um, I think to set the tone of being weird, you know, some, like, unsettlingness... I guess that's like actual surgery, like film of a open heart surgery. So no punches pulled and let you know that, you know, with the Yargo movie, man, you are, you never, you don't know what's going to happen. It's just, you, you never know. So it sets you <laughs> off down the pathway of just unsettling from the get go. And you never get settled throughout the whole thing. Now, both of you haven't seen this before, right? No, sir. Correct. Oh. Yeah. First doing. <laughs> All right, well, um, we are first introduced to Stephen Murphy and his anesthesiologist, Matthew Williams. Uh, Now, I know we talked about this in our review of The Lobster, which you can go back and listen to if you want also. Um, But if you haven't listened to that podcast, Kevin, why does uh, Yorgos Lanthimos have his characters talk this way? (laughs) You know, I have no effing idea, but it's very clear that that's just the way it is. Now, I've read conflicting reports that the actors just kind of naturally start doing it this way at his direction, whether it's lack of direction or otherwise, or they watched um, Dogtooth uh, and then followed up with Lobster the way that Dogtooth was and then followed up Lobster with the way that Killing of a Sacred Deer is. Um, I'm not really sure, but I think the real answer probably comes down to 
These characters are characters on paper and on screen, and you do not need a lot of volume, inflection, or other things to get across the point of this script or this story. Uh, the screenplay for this film is absolutely brilliant, and I'm sure just sings through the paper if you were to read it, and you don't need a lot of bombastic uh, artistry from the actors or actresses to get that point across, and I think that's what he's going for is that you can just read this in sort of a monotone delivery but because of the content because of the psychological aspect of what the characters are basically dealt with from a situational standpoint that you can kind of get away with it i mean a lot of people don't like it because it feels pretentious and it feels off-putting but it's artistic it's kind of like I don't know, it's so weird. I wouldn't have enjoyed this movie if I didn't see The Lobster. And if I didn't know what I was getting myself into with Yorgos, I would have been like, what the flying fuck am I watching? But I wasn't in that space because I kind of had an appreciation for what I was getting myself into. Um, so I really think it's all about the characters. It's about you care about the words they're saying, not the way they're saying it. And uh, Yorgos just has a way of uh, just getting to your heart and soul right off the bat. So that's kind of what I thought. Um, yeah, I, I do think it f suits this film more than The Lobster, because Steven and Anna are a surgeon and ophthalmologist. Like, I could actually see surgeons and ophthalmologists talking this way. Uh, Martin talking that way, I mean, I guess he's just, you know, he's a crazy sociopath, so maybe it would be okay to uh, for him to talk that way, too. But, uh, Cole, you didn't like this style of dialogue in The Lobster, right? So what did you think of it in this film, especially when Stephen tells Matthew that his daughter uh, just started her period after Stephen's speech? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I uh, I didn't like it in The Lobster, and I will say I liked it even less in this film Wow. The All I could think watching it was, are the, it's, it's like, are they speaking in haikus? Like, why Why are we doing this? And I get what Kevin said about, you know, you if it's a good story and a good script, you can deliver it in a monotone and get, get the feeling and point across. True, but why make it into a movie and not just a book or an audio book at that point? Um, if I'm watching a movie, I want to feel like the character should feel in a, in a sense. I, certain characters, I like when it first starts out between the surgeon and the anesthesiologist. I was like, "Oh, these dudes are just brilliant minds that have terrible social skills." Fair. And then the wife comes in, and I'm like, "Okay, well, maybe she also has terrible." She's a doctor too. Though. Yeah, she's yeah. a doctor too. So maybe she also <laughs> yeah. has terrible. And then their kids start talking, and then Martin starts talking, and then every single person in this whole universe talks, and I'm just like. I, I, I hate it. And, at the, and also I'm trying to figure out what country this is supposed to be. I eventually realized that this is just the fucking U S and I'm Cincinnati. Yeah. <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's just people talking. I don't know. It drove me crazy. Uh, that was my biggest, biggest gripe with this movie. As for mentioning the period, very strange. I mean, what, you know, I, I, you know, I support more menstrual talk in films, when it, when it makes sense, but um, you know, I guess if you're going for like sheer shock factor, and again, going off the whole unsettling thing, for sure, maybe that's why he has everyone talk like a weird robot sociopath, just to make everyone unsettling. I don't know. I felt weird the whole time, so maybe that was his choice. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Absolutely. I mean, I, He's trying to make it feel like we're all just in it in it together in this weird. I, I can't. I could see doctors' kids talking like this too. That's why, like, yeah, I'm. But it's I'm just like I could see a family like this, just, as opposed to the Lobster, which I guess it's supposed to be a dystopian sci-fi film, but. I don't know. Yeah, I could I, see doctors' kids and a doctor's family just being so unemotional like this. But yeah, that's just me. But if I would have watched this film separate without having anything to do or thought about the lobster at all, it would have been weird. But because I thought about it in the same universe and the same thought process of watching it, it made sense. So I guess I'll that's, tell you what. I don't know. Was that its intention? I'll tell you what. I Maybe? wanted to go back and rewatch the lobster because I feel like I didn't give it a fair crack. But after watching this, I really don't want to now. <laughs> and, it's, and again, I, I, I have the same feeling, but I really I do don't want hate to go back these now. Films. Like you'll, you'll find that I don't hate them. But man, I just something about you don't like the talking, the talking, you know, you don't, don't like the talking. No. All right. It well, don't sound like me meet... and I don't like different. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we meet Martin, uh, played by Barry Keoghan, when Stephen meets up with him at a diner. So, Kevin, what did you think of Martin when you first met him? Did you foresee what his character would turn into? You absolutely had no fucking idea what he was <laughs> going to turn into. I was like, I, who the hell is this guy? He's awkward. Yeah, you can tell there's some sort of paternal uh, relationship here. Didn't really know if it was like an estranged son or if this guy was a petter ass. Like, I wasn't really sure where the hell we were going right off the bat. And it kept me mysticized, mystified all the way until we, you know, get to the big point later in the movie. So yeah, no, I had I had no fucking clue what was going on. It was even like the 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 fry the fry eating scene where he's like, yeah, I like to eat my fries last. I was like, yeah, okay, that's weird. <laughs> it was just a fascinating character though because you couldn't really understand if he was trying to play like a mentally ill character, if he was trying to play like a like a, a really shy person, if he was trying to like be impressed. Like it was just mystery right away so i was like i have no idea what i'm about to get into so let's see so no i had no idea what to predict at all sure cole what did you think of martin uh i well i thought he was when you first met him i thought he was a little weird a little weirdo um i wasn't sure if they were supposed to be father son or or what kind of relationship they had i knew that there something bad was gonna happen based off of just like general knowledge of the film but i had no idea I guess how we were going to get there, what the path was. And honestly, if it was him or not, but he's, it, I mean, it just, it set up again, like the relationship and kind of this weird father son, but obviously like one wanted him a little bit more than the other. And um, just, it set up that relationship that eventually, you know, kind of spiraled, but he seemed normal, I guess, in the context of the film, but a weirdo in real life. Barry Keoghan's kind of known for playing these uh, little freaks. Little That's kind of what even he said in an interview recently. And have you guys seen Barry Keoghan in another film? Uh, Banshees. Nope. Uh, oh, Banshees, yeah. He's, and plus he was in, uh, in Trespass Against Us for a little bit. But, Against Us. Um, um, yeah. I guess Banshees, maybe he's a, well, he's a little more comedic in that. Yeah. But yeah, he's just kind of known for playing characters like this. But after this, we meet Steven's family, Anna, Kim, and Bob. And Anna uh, being Steven's wife, who is played by Nicole Kidman, and Kim and Bob being his two kids. Uh, Steven informs them that Martin will be coming to dinner the next day, 
Kevin, what did you think about the acting performances of the rest of our characters here? And, uh, you know, in our last A24 film, we talked about child actors in the Florida Project. And I feel Lanthimos, like, required his child actors to be much different than fun and boisterous children. So what did you think of Anna, Kim, and Bob? (laughs) So they're all kind of similar in their own kind of ways. Uh, I feel like the script continues to be the strong point of this film, meaning that uh, it was kind of written for these kids to act a certain way, to talk a certain way, to have certain lines. There wasn't a whole lot of obvious uh, places for improv or for feeling acting at all. It was they had to represent a very specific uh, role in these films, um, and I think they did a great job in doing so. Uh, I think that even if you look at Barry's character, um, I know he plays a kid who's probably in his mid twenties, maybe later when he plays this role. As I think a he's supposed to be sixteen. He's supposed to be 16, yeah. but I feel like he's in his mid-20s as he's acting it, meaning oh, like okay. he had to adjust oh, yeah, being, yeah. Okay. playing a kid, as opposed to the actual child actors who probably are, I mean, those roles. Um, so there's a little bit of difference there. Uh, but for the most part, there wasn't really anything too spectacular about them until you get to our final scenes, and I don't really want to get into those too much yet. Um, the opening scenes were just kind of feeling out the character i mean the young love that was a little cliche and you kind of could see where that was going so there wasn't a whole lot of of acting power that was needed there i think their innocence is the the part that you're supposed to latch on to the fact that um you feel bad that they eventually get affected by this sickness that they're um the pawns in this big evil game especially when there is this young love or um you know bob's budding familiarity or just all of those things like you just feel bad for the kids but they play a specific role and i don't think it's as much about their acting jobs as it is about their characters and the placement that they are in the story and how they kind of uh affect and play on the adults themselves so they're like i referenced as being pawns earlier and i think that's probably where i'm going to stick to that they they just did a really good job of being pawns in in the long-term story for sure Cole, do you think all surgeons are, you know, their kink is to have sex with uh, people that are under anesthesia? Uh, no, I don't. I think... Uh, <laughs> I think they do. I, 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 I think, think that's pretty true to form. I think... Uh, ne- necrophilia yeah. is what we're I don't, I don't think so. I will say I think most surgeons are kind of uh, maybe full of themselves, uh, but I won't... I feel like it would be the opposite. I feel like most surgeons would be more of the uh, womanizer cheating on their wife type versus, uh, hey, honey, I want you to pretend like you're under anesthesia and just lay there. Hmm. They have such beautiful hands, though. I don't know. Beautiful See, hands. do they have beautiful just hands or, or do they, you know, have have uh, dexterous hands? Yeah. Dexterous. Yeah. So, yeah, after Martin eats dinner at Steven's house, Martin invites Steven back to his house for dinner the next day, and it's revealed Martin is an only child and his mother is a widower, and we really start to get hints that Steven had something to do with the death of Martin's dad. And Steven's mom is actually played by Alicia Silverstone of Clueless fame, uh, and she begins to flirt with Steven heavily after Martin says he's going to bed, but she specifically focuses on his hands telling him he has such beautiful hands several times, and even sucking on them. So, Cole, why all the focus on his hands anyway? Uh, because the hands are what killed his father, right? Like, uh, and he's a yeah. surgeon. That's what he makes all of his money. You know, people live and die by his hands. 
Also, maybe uh, it's just a little Quentin Tarantino action, just instead of feet, it's hands, you know? There's a lot of focus on hands in this film, yeah. Yeah, for sure. The opening scene um, has that long shot of the bloody gloves and being removed and revealing these perfect hands underneath it. And it focuses such a long time on not just the hands, but also on the gloves themselves after the trash. And in the moment, watching it for the first time, you're like, I don't really understand what this is all about. But as you have time to rewatch the scenes and digest it and think about it for a review, it really gives you an opportunity to kind of think about what does that think about? Why why is that in there? And the opening scenes, that first one, we get the close-up of the heart. And in effect that I'm sure we'll get to here in a little bit, it starts to slowly zoom out. And the heart turns into the metal pieces, which turn into the tools, which turn into the hands. So it slowly shows the effect that the heart has, it's controlled by the hands, That meaning that they're, the power of life and death is in these hands. And then the discarding of the gloves, it could be a lot of symbolic meaning for Stephen, meaning that he feels like he can shed the responsibility of being a surgeon in people's lives when he turns those gloves off. When he takes those gloves off, it's no longer his problem. It's not a big deal anymore if he determines life or death. So I just think that the hand metaphor is really important, and we see that with other surgeons. I know I'm a bit of a, a, a Marvel nerd here, but the whole Doctor Strange idea that his hands get mangled in a car accident and he's a world-famous surgeon and he no longer has the ability to use his hands anymore, and he's an arrogant prick just kind of like our surgeon here. So hands are just kind of a really important allegory, I suppose, for this whole entire film. Agreed. Yeah. Well, uh, now we get to the part of the film where Bob uh, starts to get sick, and Martin tells Stephen that he's doing this to balance things in a very chilling scene over a uh, hospital lunch. You know, he's doing it to balance things because his own father died while Stephen was operating on him. Cole, what did you think of Martin when the other shoe dropped? When you learned that he was bent on revenge for the death of his dad and now has the upper hand in this power dynamic? I was very, I guess, surprised. I was not, it's just like how quickly and I kind of, like, you knew something was happening, but the fact that he just came right out and said it and, and laid it all out, I was, I guess, really fast too. yeah it's like <laughs> yeah like when we get very out. <laughs> uh very abruptly just changed you know like kind of the dynamic very quickly of this father like pseudo father son relationship to you know kind of a prey hunter type thing where he's you know martin has kind of infiltrated this guy's family to seek get revenge on the death of his own father and and you don't see a lot of films that just kind of throw it right at your face but in a in a i don't know i i would say in a a good way a lot of times you don't like being spoon-fed and i don't think this is necessarily being spoon-fed it's just martin's laid it out for for steven and just telling him you know you got to make a choice you got to kill one of your kids or they're all gonna die you know, we have to balance the world out. My father died. Now you get to choose, you know, basically you chose him to die for my family. So now you get to choose who dies from your family, so to speak. So it's almost like a Greek myth, right? Uh, Kevin? Yep. Oh, my. So <laughs> yeah, um, when I finished this film, I had to kind of stop, stop and think about it. Obviously, that was the first reaction I was like, holy shit, what did I just watch? But the more I thought about it, the more I likened it to a high tension roller coaster. Where you're going up, and then you're going up, and you're going up, and you're going up, and all of a sudden at the 50-minute mark, Barry Keoghan's character just drops this bomb 
in about 30 seconds. Like, oh yeah, by the way, um, we're going to have uh, starvation, or we're going to have paralysis, then we're going to have starvation, then we're going to have bloody eyes, then we're going to have death. Oh, and I'm I'm really sorry, I don't want to waste your time. Uh, I'm really empathetic about your time, but your kids are going to die, and I'm sorry. The, I rewatched that scene probably 10 times, because it's the, it's the crux of this movie. It's like the transition for me, the thing that really was like, Holy shit. I remember sitting forward in my chair and just like kind of covering my mouth when it happened. I was like, oh, what the fuck just happened? Because the entirety up into that point, I had no idea where this film was going. I had no idea it was why it was fucked up. I had no idea why it was such a regarded A24 mindfuckery. And then all of a sudden that hits. And I was like, oh, now I get it. And it was just the. It's probably Barry Keoghan's performance on that because he's just. The way he delivers such a ridiculous ridiculous statement and the way he kind of rushes through it like it's almost memorized like it's something he's thought about for a long 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 time and it's finally time to like deliver it I mean he has that line where he says something along the lines of it's that critical moment where we both knew we'd come to someday here it is the time is now but he kind of like mumbles it but it's like such a like epic thing to say like the entire monologue is just so different but if you die like digest it and kind of look at it and like rewrite it out it it's really just compelling and i think that's what makes this movie cool for me is that something so critical to the plot line can kind of be rushed into this little tiny moment in this cafeteria where it seems inconsequential at the time but it really is just kind of like the whole thing and the next scene we get he's just getting ushered out by the cops and we're left kind of going with holy fuck Mm -hmm. you know so I just loved that scene. It was just really great. It was probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, and it just moved the f- the ending uh, into rapid conclusion, even though there was still an hour and ten minutes left after that point. Yep. This film kind of reminded me of uh, Cape Fear a bit. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's uh, I have, yeah. yeah. It's like a lawyer, um, a guy that he was the lawyer for who just got out of prison gets in contact with him, and then at first he starts out like this guy's a little weird. Then he turns into a murderous psychopath, and I, you know, after that we don't have to say the ending of that film. But uh, it kind of remind <laughs> it kind of remind me of that. That was Scorsese, actually. This one had a very Kubrick kind of feel to it. I I just yes. think like the slow oh God, zoom ins, yeah. a lot of the wide shots and the symmetrical shots in it, plus the theme throughout all of it. It it was a very like shining kind of Kubrick theme throughout all of it. I was going to say yeah. like I don't know a lot of Kubrick, but The Shining is the one that I've really like enjoyed and watched. Yeah. And, like, this felt a lot like The Shining for sure. And Cole, what did you think of the fact that Steven jerked off his own dad? Yeah, great question, Cole. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's probably uh, you know, I mean, everyone can relate to that. It's pretty normal. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a secret. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> Again, I think this goes to his, just like the shock value of some of the stuff that just gets said from the, you know, the period talk to just, hey, you are, let's tell each other secrets. The best secret wins. I jerked off my dad. Because <laughs> like, he couldn't, he couldn't ejaculate or he didn't see any ejaculation. Yeah, it's like, yeah. So he's like, why don't I ejaculate? And then he's like, all right, I'm going to go do this to my dad. And then we can go find Yeah. It, it, <laughs> but I'm not faking it. No, dude. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just like, oh yeah, I'm not, I don't have a secret. I am just paralyzed. <laughs> yeah, I, I just can't use my legs. Oh. Thanks for telling me that awkward fucking story. <laughs> Uh, it's absurd and that's you know okay his writing is extremely absurdist it's that dark kind of comedy that i really like 
my favorite films of last year, one of them is Saltburn, and I think a lot of people are just so taken away by how fucked up that film is, but I just find it hilarious, and this is, again, one of those films where I just think it's a dark comedy the average person probably wouldn't laugh at, but I'm just, like, laughing my ass off throughout a lot of this. Uh, I posted on um, the A24 subreddit yeah. last uh, night before I was watching it that I'm about to watch Killing the Sacred Deer for the first time. Wish me luck. And the top comment on it has... Um, quotes when i was your age i just started blank 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 <laughs> uh, which is you know the fucking story we're talking about right yeah. now so that just goes to say yep. uh yeah yeah and this was anyway. written by yorgos and uh his other same screenwriter from the lobster of yeah. is Filippo. yep and so the other th- uh really interesting thing about steven besides the fact he jerked off his dad uh is his denial about his kid's sickness. He's in denial for so much longer than Anna is, uh, his wife, about what's happening to their family. Kevin, why do you think, uh, you know, that would be? Why is he in denial for so much longer? Well, I think it a lot of it to do with his arrogance as general as a character. Um, his arrogance as being this kind of God-complex surgeon who um, it's clear that he's a liar. It's clear that he's um, somebody who values domineerance and authority over his family uh, we get plenty of examples of that from the beginning of the film all the way through it's also clear that whatever's happening with barry keoghan's character why do i keep martin martin with with martin is out of some guilt complex i mean the clues are all right there that uh steven knows that he murdered his dad uh, and he's guilty about it, so that's why he's reaching out to him and spending all this time and giving him expensive watches as gifts and meeting at the diner and inviting him over to his family's house. Like Those are all very attributed things that are very clear throughout the film. But what's not necessarily clear, I guess, is kind of the point that Stephen admits that he is no longer in power, right? I think he's always denying it because there's no chance he's been denying everything he's been denying that he's had an alcohol problem his entire life he's he's been denying that i thought there was a really cool easter egg um in the earlier scene when he's having the speech um at the doctor convention and his wife um or the other guy offers him a cocktail and uh, nicole kidman's character basically says oh um he doesn't drink he's been sober for three years but the but she references a a medical term and she says basically that he has high ggt tests which is gamma glutamol transference which comes from liver disease which is a common concerns from uh, occurrence from or drinking so the line that yorgos pulls with with pulling these small lines of, of him truly having an alcohol problem and it causing the death and that being the entire crux for the entire plot is just absolutely freaking brilliant. So uh, it was uh, it was just a really cool way to kind of pull it all together for me. And I, I also noticed that during the uh, barbecue scene where the anesthesiologist, Matthew, he's barbecuing, Stephen's having a beer in the kitchen and then he goes out and is just drinking water. So he also has yeah. a cocktail in his hand during the speech. When you have the overhead ah, of yeah. him giving the actual speech, he has a glass that he takes a sip out of during the speech. Yep. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I almost feel like this film is kind of making fun of men like this. Not alcoholics, but these God complex kind of men. who they. I would say so for sure. Well, he's... They seem like the most logical and smart people in the room, but when things go wrong, they become very erratic and incompetent. 
Cole, what, what what do you think about Steven's character as uh, the stress gets turned up on him? Yeah, I mean, he, uh, like you mentioned, he's a big, big denial. Everything's perfectly fine. Everything's perfectly, he's perfectly good. He's perfectly healthy. Everything's perfectly fine. Uh, yeah, his, his, you know, his perfect world is falling down around him and he has no idea what to do because, you know, his his whole life is, is the, you know, kind of the operating room. Everything's very procedural. Everything is kind of set in stone and he's the smartest person in the room and everyone, you know, he never kills anyone, right? Surgeons don't kill people. Anesthesiologists kill people, which is mm-hmm. just, a, you know, a wild thing to say. But, you know, he said it because, again, he has to, you know, I feel like part of that career is you have to have that confidence to to believe in yourself, to perform these like, you know, basically like miracles when it comes to modern day medicine and surgery. It's pretty amazing. But at the same time, you're still a, a a person but he uh he definitely cranks it up to 11 and and when everything starts falling apart he he has no idea he just folds like a a wet napkin to the point where you know he's <laughs> he's kidnapping people duct taping everybody up you know beating the shit out of a kid trying to find, get uh, you know an answer when he he essentially has no control over anything mm-hmm well, he's told what he has to do, yeah. and, you know, he just is in denial about oh, yeah. he, doing it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, killing, choosing to kill one of your loved ones, whether it's, I, I, you know, killing one of your children, is kind of yeah. uh, an impossible task, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then to have Real to admit Sophie's that choice. you, yes. that it's, it's happening to you because you killed someone yes. else? Yeah. Like, like, I alluded to it earlier, I think that he knows that because of the guilt that he shows in hanging out with Martin, but then truly having to face it as opposed to just ignorantly ignoring it and throwing gifts at it is a totally different scenario. Well, yeah, I thought it was interesting that he never once, I feel like in some of these films where you have like the Sophie's Choice where you got to kill one of your loved ones or whatnot, the, the, the main character, the person who has to make the choice is like, I'll just kill myself. You know, they always say, I'll kill myself. And then, you know, the person's like, well, you can't do that. Not once, not an option. yeah. Not once do I recall Stephen ever saying he would take his own life. He, yeah, I don't think he did. I mean, Martin says you have to kill like one of your kids. Or yes, he said you have to kill, kill a family one of them. Member, but, right? yeah. but yeah, is this a good time to talk about the Greek, uh, Greek yeah, side and, of things I mean, here? We can get into that. Um, so I just feel like it's yeah. relevant to the killing of the children and the storyline. Yeah, and all for of that. sure, and. I mean, so, okay, it's based off a Greek myth called The Tragedy of Athenia, and the uh, title of this movie is The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and that comes from this myth, uh, mm-hmm. The Tragedy of Athenia. Athenia is a daughter of a Greek king, Agamemnon. When Agamemnon kills a sacred deer belonging to Artemis, who is the Greek goddess of the wilderness and the hunt, amongst other things, uh, Artemis tells Agamemnon to sacrifice his daughter, Athenia, to make things right. And uh, once he sacrifices Athenia, Artemis gives Agamemnon his armies, or no, he gives them good weather to proceed into the Trojan War, him and his armies. So, yeah, Kevin, how do you think that relates to this film? Besides the obvious point, like, you killed one of my, something beloved to me, now I have to make it right by making you kill somebody or something right. that you love. Like, the obvious yeah. point, like you just said, is that... Um, that Martin's father would be the sacred deer in this circumstance, yeah. right? He was killed. Uh, Martin is Artemis. He's pissed off. And uh, Stephen is Agamemnon, who has to make a decision. 
Uh, I think it's really relevant. Obviously, Yorgos Lanthimos is Greek. Well, not obviously. If you didn't know, Yorgos is Greek, okay? So uh, there's a lot of mythology probably growing up, probably something that was part of his childhood, so this res resonates well. The story of Troy and Agamemnon and Helen and all of this is one of the most famous parts of history when it comes to, to plays and all of that jazz. So to be able to pull something from the oldest pieces of kind of recorded art that they have out there from a, from a theatrical standpoint and to be able to kind of turn it from a thematic standpoint into something modern and real was awesome. So obviously Agamemnon had to choose whether or not he was going to sacrifice his daughter, but it was mostly so he could have his own glory, his, his own success, his own uh, things for himself. So the, the parallels are very clear there. Um, as far as uh, an arrogant, overpower, overdomineering man having to make a decision about his children, uh, whether or not he was going to sacrifice them uh, for the greater good. Now, there's conflicting stories on whether or not Agamemnon actually did it or not. There's different endings to that story, but it probably just perceives it different ways. Um, but it's it's just right on the nose. I mean, when you name a film that, and that's truly just like a fable, a Greek fable, like, you're going to have the parallels directly, even if you're going to come out and say whether or not that's the truth or not. Um, and it was just very, I, mean, I don't want to say obvious, but it was fun to kind of pull those down and look at it after the fact and just being like, uh, yeah, there's there's some some true bigger than life, larger than life, bigger, wow, larger than life morals to this story. Mm -hmm. And I like how they kind of turn uh, Artemis, you know, Martin is the Artemis character in here. But he's this, like, slobbish teenager. He likes eating fries and, like, I don't know, he's very clumsy, it almost seems like. He's smoking cigarettes out, out of a window. And he likes Kim and is obviously just, you know, being childish and making or pissing off Steven because he's like, I'm going to go date this guy's daughter uh, just to piss him off even more. And, yeah, I mean, Cole, what did you think about where Yorgos Lanthimos took this from, though? Like, uh, the Greek myth. Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think the Greek myth is a you know a very compelling story. So I I liked that he adapted it, and I thought he did a very good job adapting it with the with the screenplay and the and you know all the characters and the context and modernizing it to to a certain extent. And you know, you already touched on you know what's a godlike character in real life, and again, surgeons tend to be very very sure of themselves and they hold the, you know, life and death in their hands, so to speak. So I thought, you know, all those parallels, I thought they did, he did a, a fantastic job bringing this to a modern day audience that, you know, cause when modern day audience, you know, besides like Lord of the Rings, high fantasy isn't like a real big ticket item or something that brings a lot of people in. A lot of people see high fantasy and they just go, ah, never mind. I'm not going to watch that. But they, they, he took an old high fantasy setting type story, right. And brought it into um, a modern suburbia, right. With, uh, you know, realistic portrayal, not realistic portrayals. Cause they all talk like they're reading haikus, but realistic people in the sense of surgeons, optometrists, kids and all that stuff. So um, very well done from that aspect for sure. Is there a Greek myth about um, a woman jerking off an anesthesiologist in a car? 
I don't know about an anesthesiologist, no, but uh, I, I, I'm <laughs> no. sure if I find you know dig far enough, we'll find something about someone jerking somebody off. You know, that was yeah. that was a weird scene, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, okay, that goes with the obsession of hands, right? Like, there's an obsession of with hands in true. here. Every yeah. every like sexual act. Seemed I mean, to be I feel a, like they had to have a previous relationship. Like she she references like what you didn't get at the fish fry, yeah. meaning like you clearly wanted that earlier, and you know. It's more, you know, it's hands too, though. You know, yeah. like or her hands, I guess. Mm-hmm. And she's an ophthalmologist. She's I jerking guess, him but... off. He's jerking dad's yeah. off. He's jerking himself off. I don't know, man. <laughs> a There's a lot of jerking going around. A lot of jerking. Also, how Luna about, Martin, how about what, like, what the, the, you know, the pseudo sex scene between the two kids that was where great. Martin yep. is like, you know, dating the daughter and then the daughter just like takes her clothes off essentially and lays on the bed. So she's obviously and seen they- this weird yeah right the intimacy between her dad and mom is like i'm gonna reenact this and just lay down that's dark as shit this is kind of fucked that was one of the few times where martin just like like peaced out it's like you know what i think martin martin is making the right decision here he's just gonna fuck it it's late (laughs) it's it's (laughs) late i gotta go thank you yeah meanwhile the sun's shining through all the windows and everything and perfectly light outside Kevin, what did you think? Uh, my favorite scene in the film, I think, was the spaghetti scene. Kevin, what did you think about the spaghetti scene? I also agree with you, Eric. Yeah. It was probably my favorite film scene in the film. We get the the the. So basically, Anna decides that she's gonna drive to Martin's house because, I mean, what else would you do as a mother? You are pretty desperate at this point. You're like, I'm just gonna try to basically bargain for their lives, and. She tries to do that. She tries to exactly do that. She says, basically, it's not fair. Why should I pay for what my husband is liable for? And we get that line that is probably the, you know, quintessential great line from the whole film where it's basically like, I don't know, but this is the closest to justice that I can think of. Is, oh yeah, it's the only thing I can think of that's close to justice is what he says, and I was just like, God damn! Cause that, and he's just eating there, eating spaghetti, just cold as a fucking mm-hmm. cucumber. Like, sorry, gotta kill your kids. It's the only thing I can well, spare. I'm sorry, I gotta go and class. Like, and it was just like the whoa. that scene, like him eating. I always like it when you could when actors actually eat on film because I I get annoyed when there's like big dinner scenes and stuff like that, and everyone's just like not eating. Unless it's pie for five yes. minutes, right? Then... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Besides that. But... Little ghost story reference for you yeah, guys out there. A lot okay. of pie. But, uh, so you, he's actually eating it, which I enjoyed. But I like the what he says about the spaghetti, about him eating it like his father and how they would be like, you eat spaghetti just like your father. And I, you know, I feel like every kid kind of has those moments where they feel like they're unique or special about something that they come, they come of age and they realize everyone does that. Like that is a thing that everyone (laughs) does. Everyone eats spaghetti the same, you know, way with the twirling the fork and stuff like that. So I, I really liked that dialogue that added to that scene and just like the whole unsettlingness plus you throw throw that kind of almost like resentment that he has built up for so long and even the smallest yeah. thing about you know someone says you eat just like your dad and then he finds out everyone fucking eats spaghetti the same fucking way <laughs> like 
Are you kidding me? And then he goes on to say, I was almost more angry at that than when they told me my dad died. I was like, what? Like, really (laughs) shows the mental state of this kid. It's just like, he is, like, yeah, fucking crazy. And well, and all Greek gods were pretty much psychopaths, you know, and yeah. I, I think it is. Yeah, exactly. It's playing up kind of this Greek myth um, and putting it into the body of a teenage boy, yeah. like we were saying. Percy and Jackson, baby. I, I agree. I think godlike powers are the only really way yeah. you explain this, even in a film style. Yeah. Like that scene we kind of skipped over a little bit where they're, where she is in the parking lot and calls um, uh, our female character. Was it Jen? Mary, uh, uh, Kim? wow, Kim, yep, Kim, to go to the window. I mean, it's truly just like a Jesus moment. Like, get up and walk. I can heal the the lame. I'm gonna tell you this by the phone, and that's yeah. it. And I then she's just, like, "All right, begging, so that's truly the character later." Yeah, the power you're going for, right? So that was pretty cool. Um, so, and we get the reference too. I mean, we'll get to the basement scene here, but there's where she, when when uh, Nicole Kidman kisses Barry Keoghan's feet. It's like, that's truly like a Jesus reference, like a God reference. I mean, we keep getting back to that point where he really is Artemis or is that representation of a God. And it's just, we get that so often throughout this film, mm-hmm. you have to kind of just really embrace it by the end of it. And I think the big thing, though, like especially with the spaghetti scene is that scene's just hilarious to me. I don't know. It's I think people don't understand, like, because these films seem so serious, but they're really just absurd. And uh, I think... Yorgos Lanthimos is going for laughs, but for people that really find this kind of stuff funny, and to the average person, it's ridiculous. It's like, I why is this guy talking about his dad, you know, or how he ate spaghetti? Why is he clinking his fork on the plate, slurping it all up, and shoving it in his mouth like it's ridiculous? But I don't know. I just like there's an absurdity to his films that I find really hilarious and interesting. And, well, yeah, oh, absolutely. And yeah. It's like from a comedy aspect, you're like, hey, what's like the one of the funniest foods to eat? Spaghetti. Yeah. What should you never wear with spaghetti? <laughs> a bright white T-shirt. <laughs> and then they like yeah. they take that and they throw it in, and they're like, okay, now we're going to talk about how he's essentially killing this woman's children and refusing to give them back as as like retribution and like you know, for him to get justice for his own father. And you're just like, hell yeah, let's just fucking put him in a blender and see what happens. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. And it was kind of interesting to juxtapose that to the other scene where Colin Farrell goes to the house and he's banging on the door and screaming Adam, mm-hmm. like, I will fuck you and your mother just the way <laughs> yeah. you want it. I was like, whoa, where the hell did that come from? Colin Farrell, man. Like, as for a, for a relatively monotone, low energy film with like, as far as like the performance, he just like loses his fucking mind yeah. on the second half of this movie, and it's just great see, to and see. And that's how I think a surgeon would freak out. Like, he would be like completely monotone the whole time, and then out of nowhere, you'd get a line out of him like that. If uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was really like trying to beat the shit out of somebody that's they would say something really weird and fucked up like that <laughs> yeah so, no I, I would think so yeah. for sure i think you're probably onto something there it's magical realism i think that's like what i was i was saying a few podcasts ago what magical realism kind of is and it's like you you feel like everything's realistic but there's a magical aspect to it and that's definitely yeah, and I, film. Yeah. as I kind of referenced earlier too. If you know what you're getting yourself into with this film, if yeah. you know it's your ghost, if you know that it's going to be this absurdism A24 art romp, yeah. then you're probably going to have a better time than if you go to into it trying to like treat it yeah. as some realistic horror drama For or sure. something like that. 
All right, so uh, now we start getting into the ending scenes here. Uh, Steven kidnaps Martin, ties him up in the basement, and, I mean, I think these are just the final stages of uh, denial here. I, I know that this guy is causing all of the this stuff to happen to my kids, but I, I still think I can beat the shit out of him and, you know, point a gun at his head and he'll stop it from happening when, you know, he isn't scared of death. Martin probably transforms into a true god here, like we have those scenes or the scene of Anna kissing his feet and the kids are coming to him at his feet and you know basically weeping for their lives yeah Kevin what did you think of this kind of sequence of scenes here where Martin's tied up tied up in the basement man it uh it was like I had referenced earlier in the pod where I said it was like a high tension roller coaster and I was just whipping down the loop-de-loops and it kept just cranking and cranking the first scene with the gun where he kind of calmly tells Nicole Kidman's character to come downstairs and they're just, uh, uh, look Anna and they're just like looking at him. Hey, can you get him some lemonade that he loves so much? He's going to be here a while. Something like, like, Oh boy, we have just deranged ourselves to the point of crazy. I really enjoyed kind of the more deep aspect of the script from these scenes. The really interesting metaphor scene where Martin bites Thomas and he basically says, well, all right, so I've hurt you. So should I apologize? Should I stroke your wound? And that probably would just hurt a whole bunch more. No, there's only one way for you and me to both feel better. And then he bites a giant chunk out of his arm and he just says, do you understand? It's metaphorical. It's symbolic. And I, as the viewer, I went, do I understand? No, but I'm going to try to figure it out. So the idea, right? So if Martin is biting Thomas, that would be like Thomas killing his father, right? So some a damage has been done. Okay, should I apologize? Well, clearly, that's what Thomas thought he should do. He's going to apologize a whole bunch. He's going to try to take him out to, for lunches and try to be the father that he just murdered and give him all of these gifts. Should I stroke your wound? Well, I think that's probably the, the uh, bringing him into the family, trying to create a new family, trying to give him new siblings. That's stroking the wound. That's making it worse. Or should I do exactly what Martin does, which is bite a giant chunk out and do the actual, like, the damage that's been done? So that's what Steven's forced to do. He has to now do the same thing. He has to bite a chunk out. He has to kill a member of his family. It was simply written, but really well acted and just kind of made you go, God damn. In the moment, I really didn't quite understand what I was watching. But as I sat down and watched some more digestive like thoughts on it and breakdowns and watched the rewatched it myself and took some notes, I was like, that was really, really, really well done. Like Eric said, it was that transformation of kind of to that God character to the point where you really just believed that he'd be fine, that he could walk out of there. And even when when Kim tries to grovel at his feet and is like, just just try harder. Just try harder. Wake me up. And I was just like, he's he's not going to do it. It's just the reality of a god. He's just playing with you right now. God wants to see humans sometimes suffer and dance and do all of those other things. So I know I rambled a little bit here, but uh, I really enjoyed those final scenes. I thought it was uh, really well done and a great way to segue to uh, our, our climax. Um, so the final scenes that we see, Martin, were just some really good Probably his best acting in the whole film for me was was those scenes as he was uh, duct taped and bleeding and getting punched and all of those things. So just A-plus acting. Nicole, I want to ask you the same thing. What did you think of this uh, sequence of scenes? But also the fact that, like, I feel Anna is still oddly keeping her cool during this whole thing. Uh, Steven 
asked her, you know, like, I was thinking you could make some mashed potatoes tomorrow. And she's like, you're talking about fucking mashed potatoes? And that scene was it's great. just like, she's actually the one keeping her cool during this whole time while her, like, dipshit husband is just being erratic, incompetent, talking about, uh, I need to find the pube of a fairy. And there's just... I don't, he's, Do you have any pubes? Yeah. No, they're all gone. <laughs> I think, well, it's very much on purpose that Yorgos Lanthimos is kind of showing how men act in these situations. Like, brute force, I'm going to tie him up, you know, put a gun to him in the basement. And then Anna is just very smooth and steady. Like, I would say smooth and steady. She is distraught for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think she knows what needs to happen and has dealt with it for a little bit. Well, Steven hasn't. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, yeah. I think she she's accepted what is going to happen. She realizes that they've lost control, and the only control they have is doing what has been what Martin, you know, Martin's directive was. Like she's she's definitely accepted it. You know, she's just mm. waiting for for Steven to to come around and and make the decision. And and I think she's accepted pretty much any fate given to to her or her children at that point to say i agree i think we saw that scene earlier right where she literally lays down with steven and says hey we should probably just kill the kid we can have exactly. more kids we can have intro vitro mm-hmm. or intro vitro if we need to one. like she's definitely more realistic about this especially after uh you know kim falls you can just see that moment where she's just crying in the hallway and just embraced by the other surgeon like that was the this is fucked everything's fucked like this is just terrible and her character changes in that moment which i actually appreciated but you're right the rationale at the end that scene where we get um where she talks about changing into the black dress right before going down to the living room that was chilling as fuck that was like i know what's about to happen I know this is going to be fucking nuts. And just like the kids tried to bargain with Steven, uh, Kim tried to bargain saying like, oh, uh, I'll sacrifice myself. Bob tried to bargain by saying, I'm going to cut my hair for you. And Anna tries to bargain by giving the sexy dress that's going to make him turn on. So like each of them have a moment where they try to bargain with Steven and get away with it because at the end of the day, he still is Agamemnon. He still is the king who has to make the decision who's going to die in this story. And it, you know, we're about to talk about the final scene was was phenomenal because of that, because all of those tensions are riding up into this point, And then we get just a super basic fucking roulette, man, just a straight up roulette on who's going to live or die. Yeah. And uh, I loved it. And I think it, it's almost a comment like Anna is truly dealing with her emotions this whole time while Steven is burying them deep down and then just acting out in erratic ways. And I think that's kind of. Yorgos Lanthimos' comment on men throughout history. And, you know, where this Greek tale might have came from is Agamemnon might have just killed his daughter for some odd reason because he was acting erratically because back then that is the kind of stuff that happened. Uh, And then it was all just created into this Greek myth. But, like, I mean, in this film, they're definitely trying to say, like, okay, this myth is happening. But at the same time, showing Stephen just being, like, insane during this whole time and he's the one that's kind of the fool and yeah right agreed find it super interesting um Mm -hmm. and then yeah well let's get into the final scene before the very final scene uh where steven decides to blindfold himself to shoot either his wife or one of his kids cole is this a purely like human reaction is because he didn't want to see himself kill a loved one or is it metaphorical at all i actually personally like I'm not trying to set you up. I actually didn't find a metaphor. I think it was just a human reaction that he had to like 
blindfold himself. But yeah, I think yeah. Steven he he had no he he didn't know what to do. He lost like all resemblance or or all control, and so he came up with a kind of a convoluted plan to essentially give himself a little control or almost give himself amnesty from doing the act itself like he knows he has to do it but he doesn't he doesn't have to make the choice if he doesn't know right um so i think i thought that was i thought it was a very cool scene um i will i'll admit as soon as i saw it and he started spinning i laughed (laughs) just like (laughs) the most ridiculous way to do like a russian roulette style murder also, my reaction was like, I swear to God, if he shoots one of them, like, first time, first go, uh, I'm going to be like, well, this is, like, way over the top. But I like the suspense of Bill Moore because it was the third exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so he misses. And then it's, and it, like, those bangs are loud and impactful. They're not, they're not just, you know, they didn't tone the audio down. They're, they're loud and you, you can kind of feel them. And again, it's it's not the first shot, it's not the second shot, it's the third shot. So like, you really don't know when it's coming. I didn't know. I was I was like, how long are we gonna go with this? Like, what's gonna happen? But obviously, he ends up shooting one of them, and and they kind of um, you know the movie progresses. But I felt like at that scene, he he had lost all hope. He knew what he had to do, but he wanted to give himself some way to carment like. Park, car, whatever, <laughs> block it out so he, he can rational rationalize it in his Ex- mind. Exactly, I think that's exactly right, Cole. I think he needed to control it and come up with an excuse why it wasn't his fault. That it was a random act of chance that determined who died of instead of his said. decision. The same way that he rationalized probably multiple deaths that he caused while operating drunk. Same way he rationalized how it was the anesthesia's anesthesiologist's fault instead of his fault it was he was never going to make a decision on his own he was never going to have the courage to do it i think that that moment it really showed his character's cowardice in general how he had no ability to make a decision to to control the situation to save the two members of his family he mean he was this close literally to pulling that trigger and blowing martin's head off and martin's line where he says if you're gonna dig a grave you better dig a great big one was huge because he's 100 percent right in that moment he's like go ahead you're angry as fuck at me blow my head off but then your wife's gonna die and your two kids gonna die and you have explained to the world how there's four people dead at your house. And this movie was absurd as fuck, but it was also real. Like, in that moment, like, exactly would have happened, like, if you were in that scenario, if you could somehow imagine yourself where there was God kid is murdering your family, that was the way it would be. And that's what this movie did, and somehow that's, like, artistic? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I love this movie a lot more after the fact, and I love it a lot more talking about it. And it really just kind of cranks this idea that that final scene was, I don't know, brilliant, organic, strange, weird, a lot of different things. But it did what the film was building it towards. And it was just really well done in general. I just uh, I enjoyed it. It was like you said, Cole, awkward. Like those those shots truly came out of nowhere. It was like a, a jack in the box. Like you were just gonna spin it, and all of a sudden, just pop. And you're just like waiting for it. It's gonna be the third time. It's gonna be the fourth time. Are these gonna keep on fucking going? Uh, that was good. It was just yeah. really good. And I like the 
thing you pointed out that he probably has killed other people on accident in a manslaughter type of way uh, for operating while drunk. And I thought it was super interesting. The anesthesiologist also said, like, you know, death of a patient is never an anesthesiologist's fault. It's the surgeon's fault. And I think Yorgos Lanthimos is kind of also making a comment on how men never take the full blame for wrongs that happen. And I'm not trying to say all men are like that. There is such thing as positive masculinity. But in this case, he's pointing out, like, the very, I don't know, ridiculous and erratic parts of men and kind of the toxic parts of men too and i mean that correlates with themes throughout a lot of his films like poor things which i think is a big feminist film as well so i i found that super interesting so uh let's get to our last scene here too where we just end with the diner and uh the family is just uh kim anna steven all sitting down at the diner eating and we get these slow-mo zoom-in shots of each of them and uh, Martin arrives to orders from the bar they all kind of stare at each other after Kim just massacres her fr- french fries and ketchup uh, <laughs> and then they uh, walk out of the diner Cole what did you think of this ending uh, yeah I mean you can't be putting that much ketchup on fries let's be real <laughs> like, if yeah, you're an adult you don't need ketchup like you could have some but come on now but uh, I thought I thought the ending kind of like the, the start of the film and the end of the film, you know, it was uh, well, kind of one of those fun mirror images type thing where the start of the films, the heart surgery, heart surgery. And it's uh, essentially, you know, uh, Stephen is using his hands to give life or take life, so to speak. And then he ends up at the end of the film, uses his hands to take life and give life to his, you know, takes the son's life and gives life to his uh, daughter or mother. And then at the beginning of the scene, the first time they meet Martin, it's in the diner and he's, you know, they're having the pie and talking about French fries and all that stuff. And then the end of the film, they're back at that same diner. There's French fries are there and, but you know the whole dynamic has changed so far so it's uh, i think it's a good culmination and a good way to kind of show how everyone has changed and how the story changed from the first time they met to now um and i just thought it was a, a nice touch because it's again it's like one of those things where it happened it's a you know the great greek tragedy type thing but um, they're they're gonna you know they all have to keep living together and living in that so-called area. But I liked it. Yeah, I think it was a direct reference to the final scene where he's he's tied up and he basically looks at Thomas. He's like, "You just need to let it happen. You just need to you just get it over. It'll be better when it's done." I think he's what he literally says, and you just need a fresh start. I think is it also the quote. So I think that final scene is directly referencing that like. You just need to let it happen. So he let it he let it happen, and now his life is resetting. For better or for worse, whatever it may be, uh, like Cole said, it's the bookend to the beginning of the film. So his life is essentially in the same spot, more or less, where it was before, minus, you know, a kid. I mean, he's probably going to still be lying to his wife. He's probably going to still be drinking, and he's probably still going to be a, a devious bastard, but maybe, maybe I was not. hoping for the wife no. to be pregnant when she got up. That was like my one thing. I was like, I wonder if she's oh, going to be pregnant. Oh, that would have been a good twist. She was not, which is fine. But No, that would have been a happier ending, true. though. We needed them to be feel more destitute. They can't have hope on the horizon. Yeah. 
And All right, Eric, should we talk about cinematography and music? Yeah, sure. Before we do um, our well, yeah, I mean, finals? music. Uh, well, I kind of, the cinematography I already kind of, you know, talked about, like, Stanley, it, there's a lot of Stanley Kubrick inspirations. Sure, in here. I, my, here's yeah. my two cents on the cinematography. Uh, we saw a lot of really cool effects in this, right? We saw uh, the idea of of high elements, meaning you were looking down on your on your uh, subjects, or you're looking from below it. It was kind of a voyeuristic approach. It was looking like you were uh, observant, uh, observer on the scenes instead of participant in the scene, which made it even more. Interesting. We got a lot of long tracking shots of Stephen walking down hallways. We get the big wide scenes in the hospitals. Uh, but the biggest thing that I took away from this is the massive amount of zoom in and zoom out. So we had 60 plus different instances of a zoom in or a zoom out in this film. Even from the very, very, very first shot all the way to the end, like there is just a massive amount of this zoom in and zoom out. And it seems to be predilected on basically the character that it's showing, whether or not you're trying to make them larger than life, this godlike character, or shrinking them away and making them feel like a small character in a large space. It was really, really intentional and really well done. And I was kind of impressed on my second watch through, just like, how much I noticed it even more. You don't notice it when you're watching it for the first time. But when you kind of look back on it on a reviewing lens, you're holy shit, like, it's really intentional. He really fucking loves his zoom-ins, and they they are for a reason. Um, as far as the music is concerned, obviously we get that massive orchestral start, uh, which was a huge thing for me. It was just black screen and just huge orchestra, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to really enjoy this. Um, but then the last piece, too, just the same with, like, Cole mentioned with the bookend we get another classical piece in the diner and that one is actually um titled lord our ruler uh which i thought was pretty interesting too because that's you know obviously a callback to this godlike character of martin uh so i think that the two uh cinematic elements with the with the music and the way that they kind of portrayed some of those camera shots were just really helpful for the film and i'm sure i could talk about that during my final review but just i uh enjoyed it it was a good aspect of the film the thing where I think he mirrors Kubrick is that he has a lot of unique angles. Uh, like I think about the scene of the um, Anna and Bob coming down the escalator and Bob yes. falling. And there's yes. that very unique overhead angle where Bob falls right after he gets off the escalator. And that's something Kubrick does a lot is he will, he does have a lot of symmetrical shots, but there's always just like a unique angle that you wouldn't think of uh, in a lot of his shots. And I really enjoy that and how Yorgos Lanthimos uses that. And yet, this film and The Lobster, a lot of classical music in here. And I think in his last two films, both The Favorite and Poor Things, he did have a uh, composer come in and do uh, compose scores for both those films. So I'm wondering if you know he uses classical music because maybe uh, the production company didn't give him the money to really hire uh, a big <laughs> composer. And... He might have preferred to use a composer, but either way, his knowledge of classical music is uh, is very apparent, and uh, he uses the classical music very well in here, so I don't have a problem with that either. So, Let's get to our ratings. All right. Um, I guess I'll start out here. Why not? I think, and I'll tie in like what I think of the ending here, because I do think that's the thing that makes people very divided on this film like this film has a 79 percent in Rotten tomatoes the witch has like a 90 percent you know this film is actually even divided in a24 fans but i mean a24 fans are way more like like this kind of film 
this film's a tragedy. You know, it's an absurdist tragedy. And the ending isn't supposed to give you uh, a warm hug or tie anything that neatly up. I mean, actually, it ties up the fact that his kid's dead and the life goes on. But uh, <laughs> it's a Greek Sorry, tragedy through and through. And I don't think we're as used to that as, like, American film watchers. In other countries, more often than not, they actually do have more sad endings, more tragic endings. And I think that's it drives from a lot of Shakespeare tragedies. You know, like, I, I think this film is also kind of Shakespearean in that kind of way. And I, I like it. Like, I, I think it ties it up uh, neat enough for me where Bob dies and, you know, life must go on. And like I was saying with the cinematography, the score, and everything that goes into this film, uh, they did it extremely well. And this was my third time watching it. And I actually think this might have been my favorite watch of uh, any of the three times because the first time didn't catch as much. Second time I caught more, but probably wasn't as uninterrupted watching it as I was this time because uh, I, I forgot what I was doing. But, you know, I, I didn't give it as thorough of a watch as this time. And I think now this is... I I think Poor Things in This are my two favorite Yorgos Lanthimos films. And this is, like, almost equivalent to Poor Things with me. And that's because I also think I love Colin Farrell so much, too. He's he's a phenomenal actor, and I, I love everything I see him in in the last, like, ten years. So uh, I will give this one... An A24. I think I'm going to just give it a solid round A. Uh, I was considering A-. minus. I don't want to put it maybe on the same level as The Witch, but, like, I, I try to think the difference is, you know, why I might like The Witch slightly more because it's historical in its approach. Like, it puts us in this completely different time and place that's completely unique. But then this one echoes a Greek tragedy, which is historical in storytelling. So, yeah. I, I just, I enjoy it, and this was my favorite time watching it, too, so I think it, it hits me right in the A, 24. <laughs> All right, Kevin, uh, you go up next. All right, I have a whole lot of different thoughts, and I apologize if this is all over the place with the way we progress this. Uh, there's a certain feeling that you have while watching a film that's different from what the feeling is as you're progressively diving into the film from a review standpoint. I think Cole can probably relate to this a little bit too. While watching this film, I didn't have a great time. I was anxious. I was at the edge of my seat. I was in what the fuck am I watching a lot of the time. And even towards the ending, I was kind of at the point where we were like waiting for the whole grand ending and everything to happen. And, and it was just a rush of adrenaline right up to the end having dissected it and having brought it to the forefront of my notes and my mind and all the different things have made me appreciate it a whole lot more, but that doesn't necessarily knock the film. I think that that was the intention from our director. Uh, I think it was the way you were supposed to enjoy this film. I referenced earlier that Reddit post that I had made and one of the other top comments was someone had basically mentioned that I felt dirty after watching this film and I felt like I needed to take a shower I was like, yeah, that's exactly how I felt too. I was just like, ah, oh, that was just awkward and weird and gross. But at the same time, I really enjoyed the experience. This is one of those rare occasions where I turned all the lights off. I turned on my surround sound. I dropped my notebook and I just enjoyed the movie. I just tried to engross myself with what was happening. And it wasn't 
an altogether pleasant experience. I'll be completely honest with you. Like, it wasn't one of those where I left it crying and feeling emotionally like, oh my God, that was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And so that's something to be said about probably the way that some of the lines were delivered, some of the acting jobs. And I've kind of touched already on that, on why I think it was intentionally put into that place. But it doesn't necessarily mean that in the moment in time, I really enjoyed it. So does a movie have to be based on the first watch? I don't know. Eric pretty clearly put that it got better on his third watch. I'd like to say that if I watched it three times, I'd probably get to a point, too, where I was like, this was maybe an A24 for me. I really do appreciate Yorgos Lanthimos and his ability to get something different out of his actors without having to ask them for it. It's well known that he doesn't give a lot of direction to his actors or actresses. They, he basically just gives them the lines and they kind of have to figure it out. And it's very apparent in this film because they're all kind of dissimilar and they all fall into the same role. But that's also powerful in the sense that you have a vision for what you want your art to be and what you want your film to be. And as a director, that's important. That's why you're the director. That's why you're in that role. And so those folks have to be able to kind of pull that together. And I think that in this particular instance, they did a really good job of getting the vision from the screenplay onto the screen and getting it out there. There's a reason that Colin Farrell continues to work with the Orgos Lanthimos is because he enjoys the experience he enjoys the set work he enjoys the time that he's there and it was something that was very clear from all the performances of the people involved i already touched on how much i enjoyed the cinematography with the ways that they made these mundane shots interesting how basic conversations turned into a lot more and the character work just really spoke for itself uh, I did enjoy the soundtrack. I did enjoy the uh, overall pacing of the film. And it was something that I probably would honestly recommend to, to people to watch, especially if they're going through the A24 journey. This is a, an A24 classic, in my opinion. And that's something being said for someone who's never really you know paid a lot of attention to these things as they were coming out, but have read enough lists and have seen enough opinions and have gone through this process enough to see that this is the type of movie that speaks to people, especially those fans of A24. So for all those reasons and more, it's going to get it a minus 24 for me, probably because I want to give my reaction as I was watching it some credence and I don't want to give it this big laud um, just because there was some some awkwardness to it as I was watching it. So a minus for me, really good film. Uh, I encourage everybody to see it, give your ghost some chance uh, and go rewatch the lobster after you finish this one because I certainly want to and I think it's going to be even better on the on the second view after giving this one at work. So there we go. For sure. All right, Cole, round us out. Um, I, I'm weary that you're going to give it the lowest grade of us three, but that's okay. We'll go to go on a, a little downwards down the stairs yeah. here. <laughs> um, so I again, I don't hate this film. Uh, I do hate the way people talk in this film, and I feel like everything is like a weird cadence to it, and I don't, I don't. I guess understand I don't know if I don't feel like it adds anything everyone feels like they're talking in like haikus or just weird patterns um like the lobster at least made more sense because it's kind of a dystopian type future or situation this one don't quite understand why we still are going with this like weird direction um but if, if we, you know we get past that aspect I felt like there was a, a very good story um that was uh, adapted and done extremely well. 
Um, I love all of the actors and actresses in this film. You know, the the son, Bob, I really liked him in mid-90s, so it was cool to see him. Obviously, I really love uh, Colin Farrell in a lot of things. Um, everyone did a phenomenal job. I feel like the set design and general uh, unsettledness, uns everything was kind of awkward in a way and unsettling and definitely added fuel to the fire. Extremely A24 uh, definitely fits into like the A24 <laughs> category of like kind of a, just a fucking weird movie. It tells a compelling story. It's kind of fucked up. There's some really fucked up stuff going on. It's a film that you don't necessarily want to watch with your parents. It's a, you know, a film that you're also not gonna, you're only gonna recommend it to the people that I wouldn't say like understand cinema, but are, are more open to these unique and um, interesting takes on cinema and story. And I mean, like all Greek tragedy, Greek stories are kind of fucked up in a certain sense so bringing that to a modern audience you have to kind of understand that you're gonna have some weird weird messed up stuff going on a lot of memorable lines a lot of memorable scenes i will say i'm definitely more of a steven i like my uh my watch bands metal they last longer more rigid um you know i, I respect the leather but it's just you know it's not gonna last as long um, but uh Otherwise, I like this film. I think it's good. I don't think it's an A. I have this as a solid B24. I, I, I think if <laughs> the people talked normal, or, or not even normal, they just they had more emotion. Like I think if Martin talked like this, it would be fine if everyone else was kind of had a more of a normal cadence. But um, and give him more of that sociopath type feel, but everyone felt like that in a certain sense. So, all in all, I think it's a great movie. I think it's good. It just has certain things that I just personally don't enjoy, um, and you know that's my opinion. I don't think you should not watch this. I think it's if you're gonna watch an A24 film, this is definitely one that I'm gonna recommend. If you're if you're like I want to know what A24 is about, this will be on my list for sure. Hell yeah. In the Greek myth, King Agamemnon actually ends up getting killed by his wife, Clytemnestra. Would this have been any better if uh, it just ended with Colin Farrell getting his head blown off? No. Nah, because they probably would have died too then, right? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thank you for listening. I'll leave you with that thought. Um, please rate us on all our socials, follow us, and uh, yeah. you know, Tell us what you think. Yeah, tell us Should what Colin you think. Colin Farrell got his head And, you know... A24, baby. We're uh, not too far away from the A24 Oscars. Mm -hmm. And uh, th thanks for following along this journey with us. And we're going to keep going, keep chugging along. So uh, keep stick around. Have a good night, everybody. Love Hell you. yeah. Bye. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>